Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. Good morning. Man, that song. Wow. That is a good song. Well, how are we doing this morning? Doing good. Good? Are we awake? We should be awake after that worship. We should be very awake. I think we're all maybe a little bit in shock of the power of the Spirit moving among us. Um, today, uh, we are, we're looking at a passage in Matthew. If you have your Bible, um, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at the very last little part of Matthew 13. Um, but as you're turning there, I'll share a little, little story with you. Um, so my wife, Tiffany, and I, we have five kids, two boys, three girls. And um, two of our girls are old enough to go on daddy-daughter dates with me. And uh, so occasionally... I will, will um, tell the girls, Esther and Emma, it's time to go on a daddy-daughter date. And they will get all dressed up, you know, in their best dress. It's so cute. They get all fixed up. They get their hair done. They, I think they even put on a little bit of make it, makeup. And, uh, and I ask them, I say, where do you want to go? Anywhere. Where do you want to go? And... Um, I'm willing to go spend whatever amount of money, $100 on this daddy-daughter date, if that's what they want, whatever they want, right? And the first time, um, the place that they wanted to go was McDonald's. <laughs> and so we went to McDonald's, dressed up as you can get, um, and we had our first daddy-daughter date. The next time that we went, it was IHOP. And, uh, and so basically, they're just picking the places that, that have the most sugar in their mind. And that's where they want to go. And um, little did they know what, what they could have had, right? Little, little did they know what I was willing to do for them. But their, their minds, their experiences in the past, that it... it it sort of hindered them from being able to see what was possible, you see? And many times this happens in our walk with God, where because of our past experiences, maybe spiritually all we've ever done is eat at McDonald's. And we don't know what's really available to us. And so we limit what God can do in our lives. We're going to look at a story today where this happens. Um, and we're going to learn why it happens and hopefully take away some things from uh, the mistakes that, that are made in this passage to guard us from making those same mistakes. So let's look at the passage together, and it'll also be on the screen. It's Matthew 
13, 53 through 58. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll dig into this. Father in heaven, oh God, what are you willing to do that we have not asked for? I s- I just, I sense, Father, that your heart is so big toward us. That there is so much that you would do, so much that you would give. You have given your own son. And yet we come to you, we relate to you with such prideful unbelief and we limit the mighty works that you could do that you want to do in our lives so I ask Holy Spirit I ask for a miracle this morning I ask that unbelief would crumble in our hearts and lives that we would see you, Lord Jesus, high and lifted up. And that our seeing you rightly for who you are would create in us faith. I pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to work our way through this passage um, a little bit at a time. And what we're going to see when we get to Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown, is that pride, their pride, is what hindered them from believing. Before we get there, I want us to see Jesus' humility. Okay? And so look at the very beginning of this. It says in verse 54. And coming to his hometown. What I want us to see in Jesus here is meekness that's shown in his patience. Meekness that's shown in his patience. The thing that we could easily forget and bypass in this story is that 
Jesus is now at least 30 years old. And he has lived in Nazareth for most of those 30 years. And this, it says, he taught in their synagogue and they were astonished. This is the first time that they heard him teach, it seems. Now, what does that mean? What does that have to do with anything? What it tells us is that Jesus was so submitted to the Father's timing, to the Father's will, that for almost 30 years, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who knew his Bible backwards and forwards, could teach circles around the greatest teachers in the world, attended synagogue every single week and sat there silently. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a picture of trust, right? This is what meekness is. Meekness can sit and silently wait for the Lord's timing, just like Jesus sat and waited for the Father's appointed time. And he did not get ahead of the Father's appointed time. He was patient. And what we find when we walk with God for a little while is that most of the time, God moves slower than we would like. He makes us wait longer than we would prefer. Because in the waiting, we're learning trust. We're learning to lean on Him and to trust Him. And this is meekness shown in His patience. So, what about you? Do you trust God? Do you, maybe you feel like you have giftings that aren't being utilized, or maybe you have leadership potential that isn't being used. Maybe you feel like you've got a teaching gift that isn't, isn't being used. Are you willing to wait on the Lord and be faithful where you are in the thing that He has you doing now and to trust Him with the timing? The second thing I want us to see about Jesus' humility is His meekness shown in serving small places. I love this. It says, He went to His hometown. He taught in their synagogue. Now, I mean, just think about this. In the very next chapter of Matthew, in chapter 14 and verse 1, we find out that Jesus is famous by now. He's famous. Large crowds Massive crowds of thousands are coming to him to hear him teach, to hear him preach. And now think about this. The town of Nazareth where he's from is maybe a few hundred people. Maybe. And he goes to them. He goes there. He goes and teaches in in their synagogue, which might have been able to hold 50 people at the most. Maybe 100 at the very most. In other words, it was limiting. It, it, it wasn't very strategic, as we would think of strategic. But Jesus didn't think the way that we think. He was excited about, not about the biggest crowd that he could reach, 
or, or the biggest impact in the way that we would think of impact, he didn't even think in terms of efficiency. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't efficient, right? You, Jesus, why are you going there? You can go out into big, large areas and have the most people come to you. Why go teach in the synagogue in Nazareth? But what he was concerned with, what excited him, was going to the people that the Father called him to go to, to go and to serve the people that the Father loved. And so that's what he does. So what about you? Are there people or places that you feel like your giftings are too big for? Are there people that you wouldn't be excited to serve if the Lord called you to serve them? If he called you to, to serve or teach kids, are you above that? If he called you to, to go to a small place and help start a church there, are you too good for that? Or you're, do you see your giftings as, as above that? Because Jesus didn't. He was willing to go and serve whatever people and whatever place. So this is the humility of Jesus it's not the main thrust, the point of this sermon, but I think it'd be a mistake to pass over that without taking note of it. Now let's look at what happens when he gets there and when he teaches in their synagogue. It says in verse 54, So they were astonished. So they were astonished. <laughs> and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, what I want us to see here is that what they had was not faith. What they had was not real faith. We see that at the very end of this passage, right? He didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And, and yet they were astonished. This is really important. It's really important what we see here. They believed his teaching, it seems. It says, where did he get this wisdom? So that is a specific wisdom. Where did he get this wisdom? In other words, they heard his teaching and they believed what he said. Where did he get these mighty works? They saw him do miracles and they didn't doubt that they were real. Do you hear that? These mighty works, this teaching. So what, what happens when Jesus comes into town is they are astonished. They're astonished by his teaching and his power, but that isn't belief. That is not true faith. And the key is in this question, where? Did this man get this? So I want us to see the certainty that is required of real faith. The certainty of real faith. What we can learn from this passage is that astonished uncertainty is not real faith. Being really interested in Jesus isn't real faith. Being intrigued by him 
isn't real faith being astonished, isn't real faith. That's not enough. They need certainty about who he is. It says in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to receive him? It's clearly more than thinking that what he says is wise and believing that he really has power. You see that? So what is it to receive him? Well, it is to believe what the scriptures say about him. It's to believe what he says about himself. The testimony that he gives about himself is clear. It's, it's not enough to simply believe he existed. You realize that almost all of the world religions believe that Jesus existed, and most of them would refer to him as a wise teacher, even an enlightened man. And many would say, he, yes, he was a powerful man and he did miracles. But, but they don't believe his testimony about himself. They don't believe that he is the Son of God. They don't believe that he was raised from the dead. You see, and they don't believe that he is the only way to the Father. And so it's not true faith. Just like his hometown, they were astonished. They saw the wisdom in his teachings. They saw that he had actual power. It was real. And yet it wasn't faith because it wasn't rooted in who he said he was. They didn't believe his own testimony about himself. So what about you? What about you? Do you believe Jesus' own testimony about himself? That he is the king? That he is the son of God? That he came to establish his everlasting kingdom on this earth? That he died for our sins? That he was buried? That on the third day he rose from the grave? Do you believe these things? Do you do you believe them completely? Or do you have a certainty about them? Or do you, like his hometown, have an astonished uncertainty? And this is very important, very important for us. We've got to believe in the one true Christ and that he is the only way to the Father. Now I want to look at the nature of their unbelief. They had unbelief. They weren't convinced that he was who he said he was. And I want us to see the nature of their belief. And I think this is where, for most of us, it's going to get really applicable. Okay? The nature of their unbelief was this. They greatly underestimated Jesus. They greatly underestimated him. Think of it. Think of it. The one that we just sang that song about, the only one in all of the universe who is worthy to open the scroll, the lamb who was slain, the one who will inherit all things, who has inherited all things, who has authority over all things in heaven and on earth, the one who is literally capable of doing anything he pleases. The one who has authority over demons 
and sickness, heaven and hell, every human being, the one through whom the world was made, this one came walking into their town. He came walking into their midst, and they simply shrugged their shoulders. They underestimated him greatly, and this is pride. And this is the unbelief that we will all struggle with from time to time. Our pride that gives us far too low a view of Jesus. To underestimate, this is some, some uh, definitions of underestimation. To set too low. To underrate. To miscalculate, misjudge, or judge incorrectly. To set too low. In other words, they had too low a view of Jesus. We're going to look at this. This is what they said, verses 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Listen, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Do you hear this particular kind of unbelief that they have here, which is a low view of Christ? They had an incredibly low view of Christ. And I want to look at four things together that a low view of Christ can lead to. If we have a low view of Christ, and this happens, I, I think there's something to the repeated exposure to him over time. I think if you've been in the church for a long time, you are particularly susceptible to this. And so be on guard. Listen with your ears open. Here are four things a low view of Jesus can lead to. And the first is this. can lead to a pride of offense. A pride of offense. Look at verse 57. It says, And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. When Jesus comes to you or to anyone and he teaches and he speaks with the authority that he has and he gives the kind of commands that he gives with the kind of implications that they have on our lives, if we have a low view of Christ, do you see how that leads to our being offended? Do you see that? When you have a low view of Christ, then you can so easily hear his commands as mere suggestions. And you can hear it and think, really? That sort of offends my sensibilities. That sort of feels unfair to me. Right? I mean, why would he, why would he, I don't like that. Why would he say that? when our response, if we're seeing him rightly, ought to be trembling at his word, right? In, in awe of him. And whatever he says goes. Whatever he says we believe, we receive, and we respect. But when we have a low view of Christ, we can easily 
become offended by his teachings and by the things that he asks of us. So, what about you? Are there things that you know are required of those who want to live a godly life, but that you've sort of pushed away in your mind? You've, you've sort of, you know, moved it over here into this, like, optional section of your Christian life because, yeah, that's pretty hard. It's pretty hard or you don't like it or it doesn't feel fair for you to obey that. Or are there things that the Bible teaches that make you cringe or that offend you or that you feel ashamed to tell a friend that you believe? These all come from a low view of Christ. When you see Him for who He is, you will not be ashamed of Him or of His teachings. And so, a low view of Jesus can lead us to this pride of offense. The second thing that we can see in this passage is that a low view of Jesus can lead us to the pride of jealousy. And I think that this is implied in these questions that they ask. Listen to them again. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? It seems to me that they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, he's been with us. His family is with us. Where then did he get these things? What, What makes him different than us? What makes him so special? Why would God put his favor on him and not me? I think a low view of God can cause us to do this as well. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you've heard about God moving in somebody else's life in a way that he's not currently moving in yours, or maybe has never moved in your life, and you've thought, why that person? Surely that can't be. God wouldn't, I mean, I I know God. He wouldn't do that. He's never done that in my life. Right? I know God. He wouldn't go move in that person's life without moving first in mine, or in that church without first moving in ours. And so our low view of God, which puts God in a box, which says, I know Him. We've got a history, you see. So I know how He works, and I know how He operates. And I know one thing, He wouldn't do that. And He wouldn't do it with that person. And He wouldn't bypass me. You see. And so a low view of God that puts him in a box, that bases who God is on your own personal history, that can lead us to the pride of jealousy. Instead of being excited about what God is doing in other places or other churches or other people's lives, we get jealous. (laughs) And I'm guilty. 
we hear it and we think, why are they better than me? What about you? What's the first thing that rises up in your heart when you hear about God really moving in another person's life? What's the first impulse that rises up when you hear that God is really moving in another church, another family? We must guard ourselves from this pride of jealousy. The third thing that a a low view of Jesus can lead us to is the pride of complacency. The pride of complacency. Notice how Jesus um, describes what's going on here in verse 57. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Prophets are honored everywhere they go until they get home. They're honored everywhere they go until they get to their own hometown where people are most familiar with them, have the most history with them. I think it is a little scary that the people who knew Jesus longest saw him with the least accuracy. And I think this happens to Christians. I think we're about to, I think we're about to hit home for a lot of us. I, I think for many Christians, we have been going through motions for so long, we don't even see the ways that we're viewing him incorrectly. We've been saying prayers a certain way for so long. We've been going through the certain motions for so long and thinking certain thoughts for so long that we don't see where they're incorrect anymore. And the next thing we know, we're complacent. We've lost our joy in the relationship, and we don't know why. We don't know how it happened. And eventually, we begin to think that that's normal. It's normal just to not be excited about Jesus. No. That's not normal at all. Not considering who He is not considering the treasure that he is. Think back to last week. What should happen when we see the treasure that's hidden in the field that is ours? It should produce a joy that fuels our lives. But for many of us, we are like Nazareth. We've got this long-running history, and we look back and we think our history is who God is, That's how he is, not what his word says about him, not what he says about himself, but this is who he is, my history with him, and frankly, that's rather boring. But the reality is that at your fingertips, within your grasp, is the Lord of the universe who is willing to do more than you could ask or think 
or imagine. The thing that breaks my heart as I read this story is when I think about all that Jesus was willing to do in his hometown. You know, we have all these stories of him going to these places and of the miracles that he did, the breakthrough that took place in places. Entire cities being healed. People being set free from demons. I mean, what he was willing to do is amazing. And yet, he went to his hometown and they stopped him. You know, it's been said that you have exactly as much of God as you want. Do you realize what God is willing to give you? What He is willing to do in your life? But do you know why you don't see more? Why I don't see more in my life? Why we don't see more in our church? Do you know why? I think what Jesus says in Matthew 9 to a couple of men who were blind, who heals. Is eye-opening. He says to them in Matthew 9, 29, According to your faith, be it done to you. According to your faith, be it done to you. Such a short sentence. We could read past it, think nothing of it. Oh, but it's massive. Do you know that right now this is true over your life if you're a believer? Your experience with God is exactly in accordance with your faith. Just like Capernaum. Just like Nazareth. Their experience with Jesus was exactly in accordance with their faith. It was done to them in accordance with their faith. Do you know, think about it. Think about what we know about Jesus. Do you know why he didn't do many mighty works there? Yes, because they were unbelieving. Which tells us what? They didn't ask him. They didn't ask him. Because what does the Scripture say? You do not have. Because you do not ask. Jesus didn't do mighty works there because of their lack of desire. (laughs) They looked at him and they said, it's just Joseph's boy. It's just Jesus. And they didn't ask. They didn't run to him. 
In Matthew 11, he's already said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't get it in your mind that the people of Nazareth were hanging out around Jesus, asking him to do things, and he didn't do them. That's nowhere in the scriptures. That's, that is what faith looks like to come to him. Right? Think of the woman who's healed of the bleeding. She goes and she says, if I could just touch his garment. And that's all she has to do and she's healed. This is what faith looks like. It looks like coming to Jesus like a little child and asking him to do things for you. But instead, what do we do? The same thing as his hometown. We hear his teaching and we say, That's really wise. We see his miracles and we say, those are amazing. And then we hang back at a distance. And we don't approach him. We don't come to him in our weariness. We don't ask him to do things on our behalf and for his glory. And so... It's done in accordance with our faith in our lives. We have not because we ask not. So I want to ask you, what's your prayer life like? If you want to know where you are in your faith and what your faith looks like, whether or not you're guilty of this, then just do a little assessment of your prayer life. What are you asking him to do? Are you asking him to do things worthy of a king? Things that only he could do? The Lord of glory the king of the universe, the only one worthy to open the scrolls, the one with all power, the one who loves you enough to come to you, to me? Are you asking him things that would display his glory in your life? Or do you hang back at a distance? Admiring his teachings, believing that he is capable, but never asking him to do anything. I think, church, I think he is willing to move in power in your life. I know he is. I know, listen to me, let these words sink in. God is willing to move in power in your life. So ask yourself this question, what would it look like if God moved in power in my life? What would it look like if God moved in power in my family, in my home? What would it look like for God to move in power in my workplace? What would it look like for God to move in power in this church? What would it look like for him to move in power in my community, in this county, in this state. And then let's ask him to do those things.
let's look and see who it is we have access to. And instead of shrugging our shoulders, let's run to him. Let's go to him like we ought to. Let's bathe his feet with our tears. Let's pour out extravagant worship. Let who he is birth fresh faith in you. He is able if we will ask him, if we will come to him. He will move in power. Let's pray. Lord, Lord of glory, King of kings, we come before you. We bow before you. We humble ourselves before you. We can't comprehend your glory like we ought. Help us. Help us to see you, Lord Jesus, to honor you as you deserve. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us for looking at Christ with boredom, for looking at our Bibles with boredom. You have given us your word. You have revealed yourself to us. You have given us your son. We are united to your son. He is the vine. We're the branches. We're connected to him. You've given us Christ. And we go through our lives like zombies asking almost nothing of you when you're willing to give us so much. You want to move in power. God, help us to believe it. Break the chains of unbelief off of our heart. Pull the scales off of our eyes. Help us to see what is available to us. Help us to pray in a way that's fitting, that honors the one that we're asking. Oh Lord, help us not to think that you are only what we have seen of you. Lord, if we have been living spiritually at McDonald's for our whole lives, I pray for fresh breakthrough in this church. New experiences with your Holy Spirit. Fresh revelation in the knowledge of you. Oh Lord, open up our eyes to see your word, to see wonders in your word. Give us awe again. And Lord, let it all move us to pray and to ask you to do great things in our lives and through our lives for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.